This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Every week on this show, we bring you interviews with some of the best journalists and experts. Well, starting today, we're changing things up a bit. And don't worry, it's good news. Apple News In Conversation is becoming its own separate podcast. So now you can find us in the podcast app by searching Apple News In Conversation. Our latest episode is with Jon Stewart. We talk about his new show on Apple TV Plus called The Problem with Jon Stewart. Now, this isn't just another satirical news show like The Daily Show. There are already lots of those out there. Instead, this is a place where we see Jon Stewart play a different kind of role. One where he's not just funny, but he's also really earnest. In every episode, he identifies an issue or a problem. And then he talks to people who are advocating for a concrete solution. I actually wanted to call it, why not? It just why seems- Why not what? What does that mean? Rather than why, do why not? Do that, you know, sort of follow Kennedy's lead. Some people look at how things are and say why, and others look and say what they could be and say why not. So why not? We talked about the problem with Washington. It's money. Mm. That's, I mean, that's the sad truth, is it's money. The problem with the media. Ratings incentivize the wrong things if you don't believe you can get ratings with the right things. And the problem with our attention span. So I think what I learned more than anything is television is the dog and up. In other words, like we start with something and then it's like, and this is the most important squirrel. And then you're off. You can find my conversation with Jon Stewart by searching for Apple News in conversation in Apple Podcasts. Plus, we're giving you more of Jon Stewart right here in this feed. In addition to his TV show, he also has a podcast. His latest episode is all about climate change and the things we can do to save our planet. Just a warning, though, the episode contains adult language. If you want to hear even more of John, make sure to check out The Problem with John Stewart on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy. Do you journal, Takara? I do, yes. That's that's interesting. I don't journal. I have a diary, and I mostly write about my crushes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both Safe in space. there then, yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Problem Podcast. We are joined by Rob Christensen and Takara Mahler, two of our finest writers. I'm going to say something to you both. Talk to us. And please don't tell the other writers this. You're my favorite. It, I knew it. The I felt two it. of you yeah. together. I've been saying that to the other writers already the whole time, so it's, it's out the bag. Okay, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. Uh, Rob, I, I want to say the beard once again is... Thank you. It's majestic. It's thriving. I oiled it this morning. You know, the, the lighting doesn't quite capture it, but it's oiled. It's very oiled. Mm. Mm. I oiled it, mine, but it turns out it's just like rubbing oil on my face. It's just not enough of a beard that uh, can really do that. But what can I say to this? What an incredible transition, because you mentioned oil, our episode, <laughs> right? Yeah. Isn't that how it's supposed to go? I'm supposed to use that as a segue? It's so Perfect. poetic. Yeah. To show that I'm uh, I'm present in the conversation. We talked about climate change uh, on the episode. And uh, as you know, climate change is a, a real and catastrophic uh, event that is occurring mm -hmm. as we speak. And we have been told that the cataclysm is coming, that we have to keep it to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And uh, the point of the episode being something's not matching up in the conversation that in the conversation, what they're saying is that a catastrophe is upon us, uh, we must do something, and yet the governments seem not to be doing it. It's been going on for about 30 years now, 35 years. So we were trying to get some semblance of uh, uh, integration, synchronicity on the real conversation we thought maybe we should be having, which is mitigating some of the more catastrophic uh, results of this future that is clearly 
upon us right now. And we're going to get to that later. We've got Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's a senior climate reporter. Uh, she's going to join us a little bit later on and, uh, uh, and tell us what we missed and some of the things that we, we could have done. Uh, but before we get to that, before we do that, I wanted to tell you guys, we got another episode dropping today on, on the media, on Apple TV+. Plus. Yes. Yes. Happy St. Paddy's. <laughs> happy happy St. Patty's. And I want you to know that the media uh, is a uh, cataclysm that is upon us uh, <laughs> as we speak. And I think in the next, and the conversation really should be, how do we mitigate yeah. the effects of, of the media? What show that we do is not a cataclysm upon us. It's, it's sort of our thing. How are you guys doing cataclysmically? Is everything okay? Well, you know, actually, uh, this morning, my mother texted me, shout out Eileen Monahan. There's a poll going around about you running for president. Yeah. Uh, how often does your mother text you? A lot. Yeah, we're in contact. <laughs> She's in my life. That's a baseline center. <laughs> we're in contact, my mother and I. And generally, is she just sending you internet polls? No, this was the first one. And she says that if you need someone to campaign for you, she'll do it. Oh, Eileen Monahan, thank you so much. Takara, are, are you, do you get texted by your family? And what is the general basis of it? John, I have to say my mother, shout out to Melissa Holt, did text me this morning to let me know that the IRS is hiring in case <laughs> I needed steady what? employment. What? Wow. We've had this conversation before. She thinks this is just a flight of fancy and I should be looking for stable government employment. God bless her. What? Yeah. I love the fact that she wants you in the IRS. Does she understand that you are, in fact, in the Writers Guild, the, the vaunted organization that uh, many aspire to, only few can attain? Takara, you're making it. She's like... John could fire you at any moment. <laughs> Don't you want the protection of government steps? I just wanted to know that that is not the case, that there is no need to, that Dakar Mallard is a, a, a treasured and valuable writer, that the IRS can go fuck themselves. They can suck it because <laughs> we're not giving Takara up. We're not giving her up to the IRS. We're not giving her up to the VA. We're not giving her up to any governmental institution. This... Uh, uh, individual is a writer par excellence. Yes. I should send her my packet. Maybe she'll uh, understand. Is your mother accepting packets right now? Because I would like to <laughs> Is the IRS accepting packets right now? She is only my- wants to know if I can do math and show up 8.30 to 5.30 Monday through oh Friday. Oh my Lord. That's so interesting. But she does understand that what you've done is like kind of an incredible achievement, right? For those of you who are listening out there, uh, Chelsea Devantes, who was our head writer, came up with a really nice egalitarian uh, methodology for creating packets. Usually they're very onerous. We opened it up and we received uh, one page or two pages of monologue jokes. Takara's was in that. Takara, you, you were working in Indiana at that moment, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was working at a social services agency. So our process was able to rob uh, the social services agencies. In India. Yeah. yeah. We were able to take you away from doing the good, important work <laughs> yeah. to coming over here and doing pee pee poo poo jokes with us. Here's what show business is about. Finding people that are actually doing good things and corrupting them. Yeah. <laughs> but anywho, those are my text messages. Just concern over job security. Yeah. Oh, rock solid. I just got a message from Sophie, who is our producer. She said, I am trending on Twitter right now, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure why. I'm assuming it's because uh, I texted from my bed about Kanye. <laughs> John, do you know what getting ratioed oh. is? Say getting ratioed on Twitter. Do you know what, what being ratioed is? You don't. I don't. It sounds like you don't. That's when a tweet has um, like more uh, quote tweets and responses than it does likes, meaning that people are okay. upset with the tweet. And that's currently what's happening to a tweet from our account, the show's yeah. account. Oh, uh, w- w- which one? What is it? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll follow on the dagger. This was all me, John. I am so sorry. What happened? 
I did a late night tweet. I was trying to be cute. I was trying to say in a funny way that fossil fuels have powered the last 200 years of our progress. So, I mean, we can only vilify them so much. I mean, yes, we have to make change, but we also have to acknowledge. And instead of saying that, I called them our frenemies. And the internet said, die, you dumb person, die. So that's what they're doing right now. Now, when they say die, you dumb person, die, I'm assuming they mean me, not you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for taking that heat, John. Thank you. (laughs) Don't fire me, please. You just said you wouldn't, so. No, no worries. Uh, I, I've, I've been ratioed, if that is the, the term, yes. uh, many, many times uh, in my career, sometimes by my own family. I've been ratioed <laughs> at breakfast by my children. <laughs> Can I give they, you a particular response that I liked a lot here? Yeah, someone, yeah. someone tweeted that Jon Stewart has a kink for being trolled on the internet. A kink for being trolled on the internet. Is that your thing? Is that what gets you going? Uh, that is what gets me going. I wake up in the morning and I think, what what, what could happen to me on the internet today? Although, to be perfectly frank, I think the internet is is kind of built for that. And you know what's interesting about that, which I think is instructive? The take is basically this. Uh, fossil fuel companies are standing in the way of uh, the progress that we need to make. On climate. I don't think there's any question about that. The lobbying that they do and all those things. So the basic premise was, I think we've got to co-opt them. I think we've got to bribe. If we want to get to where we need to go with the speed we need to go, these guys have too much power in the governments and everything else. So we got to figure out a way to, to co-opt them. Uh, but what will happen is, because it's the internet, people will respond to the caricature of what you say. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll respond to frenemies or they'll respond to the cuteness and it won't be thoughtful. Now, within those responses, there may be some thoughtful uh, criticisms that are constructive that we can take and we can learn from. But the overwhelming majority of it is blood sport. Yeah. Basically, what, what it will be is uh, a lot of individuals coming out to see if they could club the baby seal that is uh, me in in that moment. <laughs> uh, but if they're understanding uh, of what we're saying, I'm I'm always happy to defend it. And I think we're on the same side, right? We do think that the oil companies are evil. It's just that they have all of the power. So we're negotiating with a psychopath. I think they're a corporation. Yeah. They're for profit. They're neither more evil or less evil than most gigantic for-profit corporations who think only in terms of the rapaciousness of their growth. You know what it reminds me of? Do you remember there was a woman that testified in Congress about Facebook? Oh, that's right. The whistleblower. Frances Haugen. And she said, Facebook puts profits over people. And I was like, Mm. wait till she finds out about every corporation known to man. Uh, that That's kind of their thing. So I was thinking in terms of judo. Can we use that energy that governments and corporations are, too, are being too slow to act? And we have to find a way to get this thing kickstarted. Yes. That's all. But we're going to learn more about it. We've got with us uh, and maybe this is a good time to to, to bring her in. Uh, we have with us an expert who uh, uh, is a uh, senior climate uh, reporter with the uh, Gimlet Spotify podcast, How to Save a Planet, which is what we're trying to do, save the planet. Uh, previously, she was a climate reporter with the New York Times uh, and authored the book Greenwashed, Why We Can't Buy Our Way to a Green Planet. Uh, so please welcome to the podcast, Kendra Pierre-Lewis. And you guys, you guys want to stick around and, and hear the conversation? Because I think you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. So why don't we have you guys uh, stick around? Kendra, are you there? I'm here. Hello. <laughs> Bam. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Kendra, we're delighted. Uh, you, you watched the episode we did on climate change. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to necessarily characterize uh, your thoughts on it. But I'm going to say, <laughs> say pure fan, 
love, 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 <laughs> maybe five loves. Uh, she gave us, it wasn't five stars. I believe she said, can I give it eight? No, uh, you had, you had <laughs> some thoughtful criticisms of it. And so we thought we'd bring you on uh, to, to give your thoughts on it. <laughs> One that I want to begin with is it's kind yes. of the tiniest and easiest to wrap your head around. Uh, it was when you said recycling doesn't work. Yes. You didn't explicitly say that you were talking about plastic recycling, which does not work. I'm on board with you. Plastic recycling doesn't work. But we recycle lots of other things, and it does work. Metal recycling works. Paper recycling works. Glass, yeah. it would be it would be better if we refilled than if we recycled. The plastic companies co-opted a system that was developed to recycle these other products to create right. this false belief that we could recycle plastic, and that's why we have this fake belief that Right. You know, that's why people put plastic in recycling bins. But like, and it's kind of the issue with climate in general is that there's always a lot of nuance and you have to be really careful in how you talk about it. Because it, if you're not, it, it can really muddy the water for people and you can have people right. throwing out things that they should recycle, that they should make an effort to dispose of properly. I think uh, in terms of recycling, I, I think the, the point that, that we were trying to make, however, uh, you know, not, not nuanced it was, because it probably wasn't, uh, is that oil companies and the larger corporations have made it seem as though the way to get out of this environmental catastrophe is through personal virtue. Right. And it felt like they did it purposefully so that we would look at ourselves rather than them. But it's pretty clear that their role in this is much larger than ours, if that makes sense. Yeah, but okay. in, in doing that, even in looking at them, mm -hmm. asking the question of like, what can we do to co-opt the oil companies? What can we get, do to get them on our side in terms of, it's almost the wrong question. Mm -hmm. We have almost two centuries of their behavior knowing that they're not going to do that, right? So this is an industry that Exxon knew in the 1970s that fossil fuels were causing climate change and they right. kind of borrowed from the tobacco industry playbook and said, hey, how do we suppress that information? The coal industry knew in the 1960s. So like they had a long time to figure out how to pivot and how to do something different, and they doubled down. And so the question we need to be asking is how do we defang them, not how do we co-opt them? So if you look at the companies that are sort of doing a little bit better, yeah. You look at a company like Equinor, which is Norwegian, it's that oil, it's 56 roughly renewable. Can I tell you and something about the Norwegians? <laughs> what? They always come through. I don't know what it is about the Norwegians, but they always come through in a, in a responsible way. They're, they're always the ones that are like kind of kind of uh, leading the charge, as as it were. The reason that that company looks the way that company looks, I would argue, is two. One, it's state owned, right? So there's a huge, tremendous. It's state owned and uh -oh, state employed. Kendra, you're, now you're <laughs> now you're stepping in it, Kendra. If you're going to go full socialist, <laughs> and then the second, and this is kind of important, yeah. is in Norway, your income taxes are public. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm dead serious. Well, I think we know Elon Musk isn't going to move to Norway. <laughs> uh, that's wild. So let me ask you about that. Because when you say defang mm -hmm. and, and I say co-opt, right. in some respects, we're talking about the same thing. And, and maybe it's a methodology. The way I look at it is, is this. Mm -hmm. When I look at the political process, right? Mm-hmm versus the profit process. Mm -hmm. Our government doesn't act fast enough right. or with enough tenacity to defang large corporations, especially ones when it comes to energy that are so politically fraught. I mean, we're seeing it right now. When gas prices go up, when oil prices go up, there is a rush to open all the oil leases, to open the petroleum reserves. And I think that the oil companies are smart enough mm -hmm. to manipulate that cycle. Yeah, but- What I was trying to appeal to mm -hmm. was their profit motive because they know right. the energy future doesn't belong to them. But the problem with that is, again, 
Well, one, mm-hmm. we used to be able, we used to have a lot more control over corporations. Up and um, we used, it used to be much easier for state Teddy to, Roosevelt, trustbusters. Even before then, and if you're looking oh. at the 1800s, if you look at a lot of the like environmental regulations that popped out in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, a lot mm-hmm. of that was based on 1800 law. They, that sort of extended it because there was a period of time where it was much easier to revoke a corporation's charter. We have this whole idea, essentially, this expectation that corporations are going to make money at the expense of society, and we've normalized that. We have this expectation that our government doesn't function, and we've normalized that. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the episode is you brought up, like, as a a species, we're not good at self-sacrifices. But that's not true. And you use the the pandemic as an example. But if you look Mm -hmm. at different countries, some countries acted remarkably well and in solidarity with each other to better contain the pandemic than we did in the United States. And I've been thinking a lot about that and a lot about World War II, for example, and how people planted victory gardens in the wake of knowing that there would be food shortages, right? But they didn't just wake up one day and say, we're going to plant a victory garden. There was propaganda Mm -hmm. and there was promotion and there was opportunity that helped people do that. What we didn't do during the pandemic is we didn't we didn't hand out masks, we, but we also didn't do things like, here are things that you can do that are COVID safe. We sort of were like, YOLO, if you figure it out, you're on your own. And naturally, a lot of people were like, I just want my life to get back to normal because I don't know what to do. I don't want to be in my house all day and I don't know what else to do because nobody's told me what else I could be doing in this time. And so when you take that example and you move it to sort of fossil fuels, we need to just think differently about everything. It's not just a question about getting rid of gas and oil. It's about the way our whole system is predicated on this kind of extractive economy that will not propel us into the future. So it's not just about getting your car off of gas and onto EV. It's about rethinking communities so we're not as dependent on cars. And it's not even about sacrifice. Like that's the other thing is we constantly talk about sacrifice. I'm in New York. I don't know if you live in New York or Jersey, but like I walk everywhere because it, I have sidewalks, right? Like this is a- Wait, what? I know, it's wild. I have sidewalks. <laughs> a lot of the country doesn't even have sidewalks. You know, r- realistically though, you know, Kendra, when you talk about rethinking the idea of, mm-hmm. you know, imagine the government in this moment revoking mm-hmm. the charter of a corporation. You know, yeah, so, I, I almost think that a corporation that produced Soylent Green probably couldn't get its its charter revoked. And aren't we on a tighter timeline than that? I would argue that you don't have to think that yep. big, right? So, like, we know that fossil fuel prices are very high, right? So what if the government didn't respond by saying, hey, I'm going to make gas prices cheaper? Why didn't they say, hey, we have this military with all of these vehicles and these buses, and what we're going to do is we're going to set up impromptu mass transit systems all across the country in places where people need it. And we're going to make it free. And that is what we're going to do to help reduce the cost burden on you of the gas prices that are increasing. And that is twofold increases. That is two benefits, right? It teaches people that mass transit is an option in places that don't traditionally have mass transit. When you say set up mass transit, you mean you mean the military would run like like bus lines or something? Yeah, just, yeah, throw, why not? <laughs> why not? Um, we give them enough money. So I'm, I'm, the only reason I would say why not is, I don't know if, you know, you're, you're aware that trust in the government is is really low and a, yes and collective but. government action is seen as tyranny i mean when when they put in mask mandates mm-hmm. there were protests in state capitals just to wear yeah but those were funded by the Koch brothers your next episode is on the media but those yes. early anti-mask protests those were funded by like the Koch brothers and other institutions that had an entrenched interest in having us reopen. And then the media covered them earnestly, magnifying the messages of what had been really small protests. The first weekends of those open up protests, there were keep it closed protests that got a fraction of the coverage. So mm-hmm. so so there's this like interplay there where like I mean the media inflames uh these conflicts in in a way that I think I think you're absolutely right keeps them going. Uh, But, and despite the mistrust in the government, the day the post office, like people were signing up for free government at home COVID tests before it was even officially announced. People mm -hmm. were not angry at their free checks. If you run a transit line and you say it's free and you're not pushing people on them, you're just saying, hey, this is an option for you. That's very different. I guess I would probably question whether or not some of that is politically viable, but but I hear your point. And, And your point being that, if we could take uh, collective actions that would move us more towards the types of net zero solutions that you're talking about, behaviorally, right. we'd be in a better place. I, I, I think that's probably 
absolutely true. And get people thinking, wait, like if yep. like you see it all the time, people come to New York and they're like, oh man, I love the subway. And then they go home and they have to get in their cars, right? Now, wait a minute. Pe- <laughs> they do. They say it. You're just a curmudgeonly New Yorker. I was moving all the way through. <laughs> and then you just said out loud, people come to New York and say, I love the subway. They now. do. People love now. the subway. They do. Uh, really? Really? I, I've not met many people who say... Can I bottle this smell and bring it home with me? <laughs> no, but they appreciate relatively cheap, <laughs> relatively convenient transit. Yes. Now, isn't that a function of population density? So everybody thinks population density and they think midtown Manhattan. And I don't think that. I think Montreal. Mm-hmm. I think Somerville. I think population density helps for a subway, but it, you don't necessarily need it for a bus line. One of the things that I think about a lot is 80% of our public funding goes to like roads versus 20% for mass transit. And mass transit often operates under a mandate that it needs to be profitable. Roads don't make money, but transit somehow has to. That doesn't make any sense. Aren't you having to untrain us, though? Because the American ethos, true or not, is individual spirit and frontier mentality. It's Mm -hmm. uh, the individual, you know, the move to autonomy in cars, the car culture, the interstate culture, that's going to be a difficult thing to unravel and to retrain towards the model that you're talking about. And I'm not suggesting that the model you're talking about isn't uh, better for us. I think it, it probably is. I'm just trying to be realistic about our time horizon. Some of it is relearning, but some of it is also just making it right. so that the, the driving is a pinch point. I like the subway. Um, I think we overestimate rail. I think dedicated bus lines are cheaper and easier to put in. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of countries, I think Cartagena did a really good job with their bus transit. If you look at South America, if you if we stop looking at ourselves and start looking at other countries, especially middle income. Kendra, we're Americans. We're, this is the only people <laughs> we look at. There's. I didn't even know there were other countries. <laughs> they exist. What? I've lived in some of them. <laughs> Kendra, how could you? Do you think there's something particular in the American mentality that makes these kinds of transitions more difficult? Because even when I look at like Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Germany is one of those countries and, and England to some extent that have made a real effort to move towards uh, EV, to move towards net zero, to uh, move off of you know fossil fuels. In this crisis, the first thing that they did wasn't to restart their reactors, which would be a a, a more fossil fuel efficient. They moved to restart coal. Mm -hmm. And does that speak to that we, we haven't become resilient enough in the more energy efficient space to withstand uh, these kinds of crises? Um, so if you're talking about Germany, Germany is a really strong anti-nuclear culture. So mm-hmm. it's just not socially tenable to restart n- nuclear. A lot of people think in the U.S. that we have a strong anti-nuclear culture, and that actually isn't really true. In the United States, nuclear is a problem because it's it costs too much. It's not profitable. Right. Um, are, are we wrong to be against nuclear energy? Because I think people conflate nuclear weapons with nuclear energy sometimes. It is much faster and easier, like, to build a wind farm or a solar farm than it is to build a nuclear power plant to that time horizon question. If Mm -hmm. we could start building nuclear power plants today and we would not have them built up in time fast enough. We just, we don't have the capacity to build them So time horizon, why nuclear is not necessarily the option? No, it might be an option later. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It might be, like, we decarbonize to 20 at 2050 and then we're like well what else can we do for energy that that's that's a question that you can raise for that timeline but in terms of getting it off us off fossil fuels getting us to decarbonize um nuclear isn't the immediate solution just because it takes so long to build mm-hmm. um but to circle back like the question is like how do we spend you're talking about political will and this expect like yeah. electrify everything all the things that we need to do we can't do that through individual solutions like i'm a renter i really doubt my landlady is going to spend tens of thousands of dollars to completely remove all of the systems in this apartment and electrify it so that I can have an induction stove and so that the entire apartment, the heating system runs on electricity without money. The greatest landlord (laughs) in the history of uh, no, that I I think I think you're right there. So I you know in in some ways, I think what we're talking about 
is similar. It's just a question of, I think, your, your idea of getting there and jumping the time horizon is maybe a little different than mine. Um, Even if somehow yeah. a fossil fuel company decided to become overnight to completely keep everything in the ground, it wouldn't deal with all of these other issues that we need to deal with if we move towards full electrification, right? right it wouldn't right. deal with the connectivity issues. It wouldn't deal with the fact that a lot of people live in places that don't have consistent energy. Um, right. The Vermont utility, Green Mountain Power, um, they're on record as telling a lot of the rural customers that they can't consistently provide them with electricity given the growing climate issues. And so they're pushing them really towards heat pumps and they're pushing them towards whole house batteries to provide backup. So it's about figuring that out. It's about that redundancy because climate change is here and the battery issue is an interesting one, Kendra, because I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, because if, if we're talking about, you know, they say we've got 10 to 20 years to uh, make that uh, energy transition. We need to have emissions from 2020 levels um, by 2030 and to get to net zero by 2050 to effectively keep things below 1.5 degrees C. Right. Do you think even that keeps things below 1.5? Because now I'm hearing that what they're saying is realistically, even that only gets us to two degrees or 2.5. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One, there's more recent research that has come out that says that the lag in the climate system may be less severe than we thought it was. So that like, it's, what, the analogy that I often use is that we're on a train hurtling at a wall and it matters if we hit the wall at a thousand miles per hour versus like 30 miles per hour. I don't want that. Right, but it matters if we hit the wall at a hundred miles per hour or a thousand miles per hour or 30 miles per hour, right? Like some of oh, those okay. are survivable. Some of those like are that. not, right? Okay, I like that. And now so what really me. matters is every, every increment of warming that we can avoid is yeah. awesome, is great. And so ideally we would hit those targets, but- even if we miss those targets, but don't hit three, that's great. Right. So, like, we 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 need to move away from is, thinking of climate is as is the, the ca catastrophe. I is, mean, is that it's, one where you're it depends like, on where you're living, right? right? Every, I mean, if you were in Ecuador this year and your house got swept away by a landslide, it was a catastrophe for you. I mean, that's the other thing: is climate effects will be felt incredibly unequal. I mean, more vulnerable communities will suffer. Uh, at much higher rates than than other communities, even if we're able to keep this at the lower levels, yes? Yes. And so two things. I feel like we should say not will suffer, but are suffering because we're already feeling suffering the effects now, of climate change. Right. And the second, that's why there's um, this upcoming COP, the big global UN conference. A lot of that is about- cops? Do you Do you trust them in any way? Because we've had 26 of them and every time the political leaders and everybody else have the same urgent warnings, and every time they, they don't act with that urgency. I mean, some things have come out of COP. We have reduced globally, in the United States, we have reduced greenhouse emissions, not as much as we should have, not as much as we need to, but emissions have gone down. Um, mm -hmm. One of the other things to recognize is that when the first environmental conference happened in Rio in 92, um, the science wasn't as settled, partly because the fossil fuels were companies were working really hard to make sure that 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 to muddy the waters. But the science wasn't as settled. So part of the goal of that first conference was to help was to settle the science. It wasn't so much about acting on climate. It was like, hey, we need to know what the science says. The first IPCC report, climate change report, hadn't come out in '92. That wasn't out yet. On the practicality of of using political power, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In this, it feels to me like when gas prices go up, mm -hmm. governments that are looking to work to stabilize climate change mm -hmm. get pushed out in mm -hmm. favor of drill, baby, drill. And, and it seems politically expedient to slow the... Uh, adaptations and changes that you're talking about. How do we battle that? Well, one, it's a myth, right? Like by the time you can extract enough oil to have any effect on global oil prices, it's too late. And second, this is the thing that's really frustrating. The vast majority of people in the United States want action on climate change. Mm -hmm. Overwhelming numbers are either very concerned or alarmed about climate change. Um, Yale Climate has great data on this. The problem is, is we're not talking to each other and we're not talking to our legislators. Our legislators don't think that they have to listen to us. And so the real question is, is how do we sustain um, 
the political will to push our legislators for change. One of the things that I watched recently was a documentary about the 2013-2014 Ukraine protests. And it put into really good context what's happening in Ukraine now. Because mm -hmm. it's, for them, it's a very new democracy and they put their lives on the line for it. And so why aren't we willing to do the same? Right? We, we, we pay this language for future generations, but we're unwilling to like kick people out of office. We're willing to see our rights get eroded over and over again, and we just sort of take it passively. And that's a really broader question that we need to ask for U.S. society. Right? Like, it's not just about the political will. Like, one of the things that really frustrates me about media coverage is the way we cover politics in general, which is we cover politics as a, as a spectator sport. It's like watching football or something. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about it as these are elected officials who are elected on our behalf, that they respond to us, and they, that they're there to enact the will of the people. And if they're mm -hmm. not doing that, then they have no business in being in those offices. And it's our job as American citizens to be aware of the policies that they're enacting. And it's our job as the media to make it clear what those policies are in a timely manner that we can push our legislators to either act on or to deny them. So often, we'd only talk about policies when they're a done deal, or we talk about policies in terms of what which side likes it or which side doesn't like it. We don't talk about policies in terms of what is in it for us as people. No question. No, they're, they're focused on the horse race of it and they're focused yeah. on the conflict of it. You know, even the polarity of right and left is the only way that you'll ever see it talked about uh, within the news media. And it's always about the conflict. But I also think we can't ignore though that, you know, fuel and energy is probably in a lot of ways, one of the most regressive taxes that we have on mm -hmm. struggling people. You mm -hmm. know, if you're on a very tight budget, and we know that most people are, and so many people live paycheck to paycheck, when you double fuel prices, when you raise the cost of electricity, mm -hmm. it affects those at the lowest end of the economic uh, ladder the hardest the essential worker, those people. How do you mitigate that? It's really easy, actually, but we don't want to do it. Great, bring we it. We know what people Ow. make. We have income taxes. And what we do when we see, what Biden could have done just as easily is said, if you make below this threshold, we're cutting you a check. You get a check. And that will cover <laughs> the increased cost in your gas prices. And we're going to continue to do what we're doing in the renewable energy. We are not going to release the reserves. We're not going to do all of these other things. We're just going to cut you a check. But there's no political will for there. But this we have what this. I've said for many years. The Fed, right? The Federal Reserve mm -hmm. has been pumping $120 billion a month mm -hmm. into the bond market. Yep. The Fed has been artificially keeping interest rates low for larger corporations. Why can't we use that money hose I said the same thing about wages. Yeah. Why can't we use the money hose on people at the lower end of the economic ladder that have food insecurity, uh, that have wage insecurity, and, and do those things? And it's- It's racism. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so the easiest, <laughs> if you look at the United States and you look at Roosevelt, we had great social programs in place up until segregation. Once we got rid of segregation. Well, the New as, Deal, though, as, kept black people out of it. The New Deal did it not. It did keep, but, right. It did keep black people out of it. And then we revoked. It black people out of it. Right. And, the, yeah. and so it was fine to give people resources. And then the 1960s happened and we said, hey, we're going to start eroding these things. We're going to we're going to say that if you have a public pool, black people have to go into your pool. So they filled in the swimming pools and ma or made them private. Right, right, right. Like over and over again, it's the boogeyman of racism and the idea that minorities and that black people are going to get something. Right. You're going to give money to people coming across the border. So how do you fight that? How do you, because that boy is that deeply ingrained, Kendra, and I think you're onto something here. And that is really the essence of resource guarding. How do we make it so that it's understood that you're not resource guarding when you're investing in communities that struggle? Because if you can lift them up, the productivity of everybody goes up. So how do we get that message across? If I knew, I think I'd have a Nobel Peace Prize. But I think the first step is to name it, right? To um, to talk yeah. about how like that scarcity mindset is baloney and all it does is enrich the richest people and it leaves the rest of us fighting over scraps, right? Like I think it's right. really important to 
to at least name why we're doing the things that we're doing and so that more and more mm-hmm. people are aware of it. You know, there are a lot of solidarity movements. There are a lot of people who are having these conversations and that's how it starts. It can often feel like conversations don't matter, but they do. And so having these conversations, but not just with like-minded people, but with like your friends and with your family and raising it and who may not agree with you, but raising it and being like, isn't it better for everyone if we have X, Y, and Z? And it's true. I often joke that the way that we should advertise and push for mass transit is if we can call it, um, it's better for parents and it's better for alcoholics, right? Like you can go to the bar, you can get drunk, and then you can get home safely. If you're a parent, you're like counting the day Isn't until your kids. For Uber, <laughs> I thought that was the whole point of Uber. But Uber isn't everywhere, and Uber is bad for the environment. Mass transit's better. Um, but also, as a kid, I grew up in New York. I started writing. I started going to activities on my own when I was like 10, 11, 12, because I could ride the bus. Right. My parents didn't have to cart me everywhere. That's such a tax that we put on parents, and it creates a have and a have not culture. But like, of who can do that, right? But if you can have a transit system that is safe enough and efficient enough and frequent enough that you can put, you know, children on it, then all of a sudden that gets better. We don't talk enough about the fact that like cars kill so many people, right? Like we have normalized cars as a a mass, putting aside climate, everything, moving people into transit also reduces death. It reduces accidents. It reduces um, injuries. It opens up a world of ability. If you're blind, if you're epileptic, you can't drive, right? Like there are all of these people who are sort of put onto the margins of society because of the ways that we structured it and we can restructure it in a way that is better for the environment, yes, but it's also a better place for us to live in. And I think that's the message that we need to get across to people, that it's not just a message of sacrifice, but everything else will be better. Yeah, it's a, it's a retraining though, Kendra, because it is, you know, to roll back that feeling of autonomy is a hard one, mentally. But it's a myth of now, autonomy, but- Right? It's a myth. If you're spending, I think the average family son spends around 20% of their take-home income on their cars. If you're spending 20% of your income on your vehicle, how autonomous are you if a change in oil prices? I agree with you there. I think the 60s is a really interesting era to look at because that was the divergence of suburban culture from city culture in the 60s. The uh, Immigration Act of the 60s the uh, Civil Rights Act of the 60s. That really feels like a, a point where what you're talking about in the culture about resource guarding, where this idea of the other coming to get us really took hold in a very practical way for people, this fear of this creeping other thing that was not American and not not of them. I think it's some of it has to do with what people believe to be the default setting of this country, which is, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I think they look at it still in that lens. Yeah. And it's funny because when you talked about giving up autonomy, when I think of what makes me autonomous, it's my bicycle. It's not my car. My car is like a chain <laughs> that I think about selling every day. In New York, yes. Outside of New York, different. I lived in rural Vermont. That's got to do with Vermont. Did you really? my, yeah, I did. Um, I lived on four, 30 acres, uh, 10 miles outside of town, wow. uh, next to a cattle farm. Uh, and uh, my big takeaway was I don't want to be that car dependent. And so I moved back. <laughs> like, that was my takeaway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can see that. Can I ask you a question that's completely off topic, though. <laughs> sure. How nice are cows? Cows are. Cows are sweet. But do you know, do you know what are delightful? Um, I got to spend time on a sheep farm. They're the best. They're like a big hug. They're remarkable. I know this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I just thought <laughs> I wanted to get in there. That sheep well, it are all does. Hard. You know what's cool about sheep is you can graze them under a solar panel. And it's good for the solar panel because it uh, keeps the grass low. And solar panels need low grass to produce maximum electricity. And it's great for the sheep because they get shade. And so they like grazing under the solar panels. And it's like a win-win situation. This world that you live in, Kendra. <laughs> This world of synchronicity, <laughs> where each creature helps the next creature. It's it's what happens. This wonderful you, world you're talking about, Kendra. A it's what happens world. when you look at climate through the lens of solution versus the right. lens of what's the problem. We know what the problem is. How do we fix it? And that's what so we try to do, do every this week. Time? So let, let's get back to the original premise, mm-hmm. and then we'll let you go. The oil industry presents an enormous roadblock. Mm-hmm. The legacy profits of that industry allow them to have outsized influence in the political system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a real stranglehold on political will 
Because mm-hmm. as you can see, fluctuation in price sends people reeling. Mm-hmm. How do we defang them if we can't co-opt them? My, my thought was cut them in on the energy future. Your thought is cut them out of the energy future, but defang them now. So how do we do that in a way that is consistent with the time horizon that we keep talking about? I mean, there are several ways of doing it. You can start with eliminating the subsidies that we give them. We shouldn't be subsidizing people that are killing humans and the planet. We shouldn't be giving them $20 billion a year. (laughs) How do you give a business making billions in profits a subsidy of $20 billion a year? It's bonkers, but that should be Um, done no matter what. The other is what I floated earlier is you can make it state-owned, which has its own benefits, pros and cons. If we can't get healthcare in this country, there's no way we're going to be able to nationalize the oil industry. I just, I just don't think it's feasible. Can I tell you something? State-owned oil industries don't behave in a beneficial way either. You talk about Gazprom, you talk about uh, China state-owned <laughs> industries, even Venezuela. They get weaponized by governments. They really they do. They can. Um, the other is we stop leasing. On we stop the fossil fuel leasing moving forward. Um, you can do things like staggered taxation. So like you, this amount of oil that they take out that gets taxed at this rate and this amount of oil gets taxed at this rate and you keep um, dropping the rate. So like if you extract 10 gallons of oil, you get taxed at 2%. If you extract the next 30 gallons, you get taxed at 3%. The next 40, you get- What do you do though about the political problem of rising gas prices? Because you see- Yeah. Here's what'll happen in 2022. So mm-hmm. let's say gas prices are $5 a gallon in 2022. Mm-hmm. Democrats get swept out. Republicans mm-hmm. come in. And the first thing they do is unravel whatever progress was made on energy efficient legislation. And we become a rapacious petrostate. But I guess the question is, if so many people in the United States care about climate change and so many people care about the future and they're aware of the problem, why is it so easy for it to get swept out when gas prices are high? Because what is theoretical? Well, it's not theoretical anymore. For a lot of people, the effects of climate change are not really something that they interact with on a day-to-day basis. John, yeah, the sky was orange in New York City last year because of the smokes from the fires out west. I know, but- There's this other issue too, which is we have had- decades and decades of erosion of the Voter Rights Act and voter suppression. So many of the people who want to vote cannot vote. And so if you are asking me, like, where should we be spending our energy right now? As much as I care about climate change, and I don't want to undermine that, I also am very scarily watching this erosion of democracy that's happening, this marginalization of voting. And if you, the people who want action need to be able to vote, and the people who want action are overwhelmingly people of color. And those are exactly the same people that are being targeted for voter suppression. Again, you can't disentangle the racism. But if you're talking about in the near term, what should we be doing if you're concerned about climate? You should be making sure that everyone who who is legally allowed to vote should be able to vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, political power is a thing. I think you have more faith in humankind's ability to be preventative rather than reactionary. I think my experience with humans has been we are a better, we react to crises better than we prevent crises. And by the way, I'm not downplaying the change in gas prices for people because it's real and it has a grand effect. But the crisis is generally what's in front of your face, not what's down the road. You're saying that people are only reactionary. And in a lot of countries, Taiwan sent emissaries to China as COVID was breaking out because they could see it was coming. We were, so this is one of the things that I keep pushing back against. You're saying as a species, we're reactionary. That is incorrect. Americans are reactionary. And I think that- I would honestly- There's a ton of, wait, there's a ton of psychological literature about this because so much of psychology is based on Western, mostly American college students. It's, um, It's called weird, Western educated, industrialized, rich, developed nations. And so we base our perception of what humankind is like on the subpopulation that actually, if you look at globally, is an anomaly. It's not the same. So like, yes, I think there are many of the things that you say are true of the way in which Americans act, but I wouldn't say that's the way that people act globally. 
I would not at all ascribe that to humanity. Robin Wall Kilmer wrote this beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And one of the things that she notes is in her book right. that many of her students have no perception of the ideas of human having the capacity to live in harmony with nature. If that's the attitude that you're going into dealing with climate change, of course you're going to think we can't solve this problem. But if you look and you see other people, like Costa Rica has a far smaller carbon footprint than we do, and they do far more with less money. They have a higher longevity than we do, and they right. don't have anywhere near the money or the resources that we do. They're a tiny right, They are right? tiny but but there are always these reasons to say and they're, and they're not they're not heterogeneous in the same way that we are. You know, one of the difficulties that America has is multiculturalism is just more difficult to wrangle. So when you talk about Finland or you talk about Costa Rica, I, I understand what you're saying that Americans are or that Western and industrial societies are more selfish as a function of that. I mean, look, it's colonialism, it's imperialism. It's all those exploitative practices that got these societies to where they are. But I guess my faith in humanity. Okay, so look at New Zealand. They're a heterogeneous society and they managed to contain COVID and we didn't. And yes, they're a smaller country. They didn't let anybody in. Like they stopped everything. But, but America decided that we were going to effectively do nothing. And almost almost as soon as we started that's to not, do something. Wait, fair. wait. Almost as soon as. We to do nothing. We didn't, that, that's not fair. Almost as soon as we decided to do something, the data started coming out that the people who were predominantly affected were people of color and the open up started again. I think we're such a, a, a special country and we're complex in so many ways that it is unfair to the rest of the world to say, to, to, to extrapolate to all of humanity based on this country. That's all I'm saying. Oh, I, I don't disagree with you there. But my feeling about people is, we're a successful species because we're exploitative. Like, not just in America and not just in the Western world. Look, as human beings, we are hierarchical. So I agree with you about the Western world, but let's not pretend that the non-Western world lives in harmony, because they I don't. I didn't say the non-Western world lives in harmony, but literally humans have only been able to survive as a species because of cooperation. Yes. I, I agree with your premises, but with skepticism. Uh, but I do appreciate it. And I hope uh, you were able to get uh, the points that you wanted to get out uh, and, and some of your frustrations at watching the episode um, by having this discussion. And I certainly learned a lot and I appreciate uh, the perspective that you're bringing to it. Thanks for taking the time and responding to my criticism. Please, <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, and thank you for joining us. And I hope that uh, we will see progress on certain uh, areas of it and that we can have uh, further conversation in the future. Yes. And if nothing else, you should listen to our recycling episode. It's quite good. <laughs> it's on uh, how to save a planet. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Kendra Pierre-Lewis, senior climate uh, reporter, please check out uh, their podcast and the book uh, that she had written, Greenwashed, Why We Can't Buy Our Way to a Green Planet. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us, Kendra. Thank you so much for having me. Man, there were moments where I was like, oh my God, we're going to do this. I'm hopeful. And then there were other times where I was like, ah, I'm not, I, I don't know, man. I don't believe in people the way that she might. And I understand the Western chauvinism or prejudice, but I still don't, Yeah. you know, and, and, and we missed each other a little bit on that stuff. Yeah. But I thought uh, her comments on, uh, you know, the, the racial underpinnings of this uh, were really spot on. Um, I just don't know about the let's all take the bus, you know. I feel and like Kendra had all of the information needed. She had the answers. But when we ask how do we solve the climate crisis, we get a lot of scientific answers that, that will work, but that's not going to solve the crisis. We need human emotional answers. We need yeah. to change. And so it's more of uh, how do we go about communicating? Her point about the media, I thought, was well taken. I think we agree with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that. Takara, what do you got? You know, this is my major takeaway from the episode, but I really do think tackling voter suppression and thinking that, you know, black and brown communities overwhelmingly support politicians who want to do something to prevent a climate apocalypse and they're being shuttered from their their right to a, f a fair voting process is actually something that's really, really scary. Um, yeah. And I think it's going to have uh, tremendous effects on 
on the state of this, not only this country, but the world. And that's scary to think about and incredibly disappointing. In terms of also the idea of, of weakening this democracy to yes, the point where, it, absolutely. where it's a, min- a minority rule country, mm-hmm. where it's more authoritarian. I agree with that. Takara and, and Rob, let me ask you this, though, because there's one thing about that, that that troubles me, and that is this idea that, you know, black and brown communities will overwhelmingly vote for greener policies when higher gas prices hit those communities harder. If you're on a tightrope financially, $3 to $4 on a gallon of gasoline, I'm not convinced that you won't vote that more than you'll vote for a future. It's, it's hard to see your future when you just need to drive down the fucking road. You know what I mean? That's what I'm and, saying. And not just black and brown people, but anyone. Anybody. Anyone who's like, you know what? I'm making $15 an hour or less. I have children. I have medical expenses. Like, right. if anything comes up to burst my, my bubble, I'm screwed. And gas right. is one of those things that's just like, oh, my God. I had it all figured out. I, was, I had all these plates spinning. And now here comes this fucking thing that's going to make me drop one. So, yeah, I do think that's a concern, and I, I do think it's going to be weaponized or someone's going to be like, listen, I, I'm going to be the guy who lowers these gas prices, and that's all you see because if I can keep those fucking plates spinning, that's all right. I care about. So I do think it's going to be a political pl- ploy um, this year and in 2024. And those problems are closer. Those Yeah, the, it's the, closer. The, the, your budget problem is going to happen before the climate change problem exactly. happens for the most part. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like— Every every turn that I keep getting to gets me back to we got to also get these guys to turn the ship around a little bit. That that's my only point is all these other things are also very fragile. And if we could just you know they're all going to have to be working in concert if we're going to in the next 30 to 50 years be able to mitigate and get a handle on, on all these different things. But, uh, y- you know, so many wild cards get thrown in there, including, by the way, World War III, <laughs> which tends to throw another monkey wrench yeah. Yeah. Uh, in- into it. But I-, I always had this sense of like, because the narrative we've all been told is that the good guys always rise up mm-hmm. to defeat authoritarianism. As you watch it unfold in real time, boy, it seems less certain. You know, you, you, you'd like to think like, oh, okay, Putin's the villain. He wears the black hat, so he's definitely going to go down. And then you're watching it unfold and you're going, uh, he does go down, right? You know, like, well, hold on a second. Maybe China's going to jump in and, and give him weapons and all. And you're like, wait a minute. So if China and Russia join together, like, does democracy lose? Like, how does this play out? I'm scared of that narrative as well of good guy, bad guy, because uh, I'm, re- I'm waiting f- for us to be sold something, right? So, you know, Ukraine yeah. is the good guy. Russia's the bad guy. We all get fired up, and all of a sudden there's a bill. There's a budget. There's a new weapon. There's uh, some troops somewhere. Is. We're going to get done in somehow again, you know? Uh, I hope not. Jesus, you're dead on right uh, when it comes to that. Uh, I want to get back to the days where all we need to talk about is Rob's beard oil. <laughs> the simple times. Yeah. But you know what? This media episode, this will be a, a great chance to look at that. You know, it's interesting dropping this in the middle of it now because it's really about the overly urgent, overly speculative coverage, which for the most part within the Ukraine uh, situation, they've done a really great job. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's almost more upsetting because it shows they've had this ability all along. Yeah. Well, it does feel like a spectator sport, and it feels like a, that rhythm of the if true is really popping up right yeah. now. Are they starting to go with that now? Have they run out of real news and they're starting to speculate through the uh, uh, Ukraine thing now? Well, now that, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, is Russia having conversations about, you know, getting reinforcement from China? If true, does that mean— are we going to have yeah. to form a coalition? Is NATO going to have to do something? Are they going to close the airspace over Ukraine now? If true, what's going to happen? You know, and China wins no matter what. We cannot fight China. China makes everything in the U.S. All of our products. Why are we fighting any of these fuckers? 
Like, here's the thing. China's got China's thing. Russia's got Russia's thing. We got our thing. Like, didn't imperialism die? Doesn't everybody realize that it's going to be against their own interests to spread themselves out in that way? Look, people just want to have their own identity and their own, uh, you know, autonomy. And imperialism is just going to hollow you out from the inside. Agreed. And, and that's why I think we can't trust our media right now. It's the same media when we were getting out of Afghanistan that we didn't trust, who had hooks on, warmongers on, MSNBC and CNN. And now it's right. that same media. It didn't change. Now they're selling us Ukraine, Zelensky, let's go. And I do feel for them. I do feel for them. But I don't feel less when I see dead Russian bodies. But they want right. me to be desensitized to dead Russian bodies so I can root for Ukraine so they could sell me a fucking weapon or a bill or put troops somewhere. You know, we've already sent billions. That's coming from a gentleman who served. So for those of you who- <laughs> I was just going to uh, say, like, that's the veteran for, talking, I- <laughs> just so we're clear. And speaking so of veterans clear, talking- This is coming from experience. <laughs> yeah, speaking of veterans talking, I don't know if you guys saw this. And another speculative piece, someone uh, wrote an article, they're like, in search of a just war, where there, there are people who are nearing retirement in the U.S. military who are wanting to go- to the Poland-Ukraine border, to the Russian-Ukraine border, and they want to fight because they're like, you know, when I joined the U.S. military, this is what I wanted. I wanted a just war. And so for them, this is the just war that they were looking for. And there was a Marine who was quoted, obviously, he was anonymous, but he was like, this is what I was looking for when I joined uh, the, the service. Instead, I got sent to the Middle East and I did things that I don't think was right at the time, but now I could perhaps go back and right these wrongs if I just go oh. over there and fight a just war. And that just broke my heart for a number of reasons. One, you shouldn't have been over in the Middle East in the first place. And two, the fact that you need you think that you need to go and, and redo those war traumas to solve a problem. And again, I do believe that that is the media posturing and making it so that someone's like, oh, this is it, this is the bad, this is the good, and we're gonna keep right. you here watching it because if true, it's going to be real good. If true, we can finally put the white hats back on. Exactly. And, and let's not yeah. forget, like, you know, in the Middle East, we were Russia. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh, my God. We, what Jesus. Russia's doing, we did to the Middle East. But we, we were sold that we were the good guys then. And I love well, everyone in the military. And, I, and if, if there was World War III, I'll go back if I have to. But I don't right. want to. I don't want to. No, but I, you, you said something really interesting, which is to desensitize you to Russian bodies. And that's, boy, does that get to a very hard truth, which is there are certain bodies we cry for and certain bodies we don't. Hmm. Until we get to a point where we just want to minimize the bodies, we lose. Agreed. Because they're, you're, you're, you're dead on right. And the sad thing for a lot of the, the people in Russia is they're being desensitized to the bodies in Ukraine. And they're being shown information that's not accurate to desensitize them to those bodies. And that's how this goes down, is is that desensitization. Uh, uh, We got to figure out like a palate cleanser. (laughs) I know. We went dark here. (laughs) Do something funny, Rob, right now. Do we have a morning show button we can press? That was like, that, that's one of those things, like if we were doing Stern, we'd do it, and then like somebody would hit the fart noise, and we'd all be like, ah, baba booey. Yeah. Then Bring in done. the babies. <laughs> yeah. And Takara, I believe you are going to end the segment today. Here we go. Here's the morning show button. <laughs> in, in, the, in the pettiest way possible. What, what is it? What are we about to hear uh, from, from you that's going to end this, uh, uh, gonna end this episode? What's our segment? Really, it's it's just a, a suggestion. It's a suggestion to those out there who are trying to romance and woo someone that just because we're in the middle of a climate apocalypse doesn't mean that you should uh, stop flying out the girls to an island getaway somewhere <laughs> and paying for all of their things and making sure that there are crab legs all around. <laughs> It's time for another edition of Now That's What I Call Petty. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm speaking on behalf of all the girls that still want to enjoy the finer things in life, even though the planet is heating up faster than a Harlequin romance novel. Just because sea levels are rising, 
droughts are intensifying, and hurricane seasons are treacherous doesn't mean that it's impossible to plan a luxurious weekend getaway. The girls deserve to be flown out. The girls deserve crab legs and fancy drinks named after Halle Berry movies. Okay, that last part was an idea I had for a themed restaurant, so please disregard. But tell me you would knock back a gothica colada or a swordfish spritz. Refreshing. You can't call yourself a sugar daddy or a sugar guardian if you aren't willing to spring for a plane ticket and a suite with a beach view. Oh, all the beaches are underwater? Make one. Are you worried about the birds in the sky dropping dead from starvation? Wear a helmet! Preferably designer. Looking at you, Helmet Lang. Are the rays of the sun too intense? You're lying. Nothing is more intense than my love of crab legs. You guys, the butter, and there's a mallet, and you wear a bib. Like, okay. Climate change is not an excuse for you to stop caring about romance or mutually beneficial transactional dating practices. If anything, climate change is a challenge to see how far you will go to impress someone whilst in the middle of an apocalypse. K romantico. Let the record show that this podcast is pro-wooing. And honestly, you should be beyond thrilled that I took time out of my busy schedule to share this with you all because I'm currently packing for a beach trip myself with the Monsters Ballini. Halle Berry has not signed on for this project, but, you know, we can convince her. If there's a lot of us coming in at the same time, I think we can move her to take some action. Where am I going? Don't worry. You'll find out on Instagram. Petty. I know. Can I tell you something? Kendra should have been on for this one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad she's gone. This week's episode is uh, on the media. Uh, You can check it out uh, on Apple TV Plus. That's our show. Thanks to Kendra Pierre-Lewis for joining us. Thanks to Rob and Takara. We got a newsletter, problem.com. And uh, enjoy the media episode. And then whoever hates that, you can uh, come on. You know what I think we're doing? Incentivizing people to rip it apart. Right. Rob has a PSA about that really quickly. Listen, we like criticism, but don't be a dick, okay? So criticize us, disagree with us, but don't be a dick because you'll never be on our podcast. (laughs) Has it been wild? You know, people love recycling and don't like when I curse. And when it comes to cursing, I'm going to work on that shit. I promise. (laughs) Uh, You're a good fucking man. Uh, Takara, Rob, good stuff. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. Later. Peace. Later. Bye-bye. Problem with John Stewart podcast is an Apple TV Plus podcast and a joint busboy production.